Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Multiple Theory podcast with now the University of Toronto Jungian Association. I am your host, Nassim Risha, and I am the president of the Jungian Association, as well as a student therapist and researcher at the U of T. Today, I'm being joined by Corey Lewis. So Corey, you are an assistant professor in the teaching stream at the University of Toronto, teaching at the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology. Corey is also certified by the American Philosophical Practitioners Association as a philosophical counselor and is a reverend in the Universal Life Church. That's right. That's right. That's right. In, in sort of decreasing order of how much time and energy it took to get those qualifications. <laughs> the PhD was a long, long one. Uh, the Philosophical Practitioners Association was a weekend Zoom course that I did like last weekend. I haven't actually started doing that yet, but I am certified. It's the absolute, it's God's honest truth. And becoming a reverend in the Universal Life Church, I would encourage anybody to do this. Uh, it takes about one minute to sign up. It's totally free. They've never sent me any spam. Uh, and you just fill in a form on, on their website. That's it. That's how I got to be a reverend in the Universal Life Church. Okay. Well, you know, I am curious actually about um, all of these different qualifications and maybe we can say a bit about them before we get into our main topic. Uh, so first of all, what is a philosophical counselor? How did you get involved in that uh, stream of things? And, and maybe how does it relate to or, or differ from what sort of any other counselor would be doing? Sure. So um, I've been curious for some time about philosophy and practice. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in the idea of philosophy being useful to people. It's certainly been useful to me in, in sort of organizing my life and how do I think about it and all that stuff. So I, I find philosophy to be tremendously useful, although I see it not going to great use a lot of the time. So there's quite a bit more philosophy done that doesn't seem to be helping people than uh, there is that's helping. So uh, philosophical practitioners, the, the, the ideas are a philosophical counselor. The idea is that you can talk to somebody in a, in a kind of one-on-one -on -one or group setting and help them do philosophy, hopefully useful philosophy that um, helps them navigate their life in some way. Um, so the APPA insists very strongly, uh, partly for philosophical and partly for legal reasons, that they're not therapists. Uh, they're not providing psychotherapy. Uh, they're they're a quite a different model. Um, I'm not a certified counselor. So a certified counselor in Ontario is like you have to have a MSW or a master's of social work, something like that. Uh, the three-day Zoom course did not, did not give me a master's degree. Um, so they, they insist that it's a different practice, but that, you know, some of the problems that people have are philosophical problems. Some of the problems that people have are ethical or moral. They're about the meaning of life. They're about maybe um, trying to produce a set of consistent beliefs or um, trying to think through some just some epistemological problems, a problem about how do I know what the world is like? I mean, I know there's certainly a steady stream of young, mostly men who read some philosophy and get sort of struck down by skepticism. How do I know anything kind of thing? Um, so those are the kind of issues that, you know, you could take those to a therapist and they might deal with them on an emotional level, or I guess there are, I mean, cognitive, cognitive therapies as well. 
Um, but the philosophical, the idea of a philosophical counselor is that you could you could also tackle those questions using the traditional methods of philosophy, asking questions, looking at arguments, weighing evidence, at reframing questions, that sort of thing. So the idea is of, of a philosophical counselor is somebody who would help facilitate somebody who has training in philosophy who would help facilitate that process for other people. Hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, it seems to me to bear a lot of similarity to the aims of existential psychotherapy, uh, which is a, a form of, of counseling of therapy in which uh, I think really some of the main goals of the therapy are helping people toward uh, finding meaning in their life, um, dealing with, uh, you know, sort of these existential problems like the fear of death, etc. Yeah. Uh, one thing that strikes me as uh, intriguing about that comparison, I guess, is that, of course, as you would expect from the name, a lot of the existential uh, psychotherapists are relying on uh, people we would more consider to be uh, existential philosophers. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, for example, uh, Irvin Yalom is one of the big guys in that field, um, and he's written about, uh, I think he wrote a whole uh, fictional book about conversations with uh, Nietzsche, for example. Uh, I understand, though, that you're coming from a slightly different uh, philosophical tradition. Uh, is that right? That's yeah, that's absolutely right. So the, the existentialists are broadly continental philosophy for whatever that categorization is worth. And I'm I'm trained in the philosophy of science, which is uh, there's some debate about whether it's in a type of analytic philosophy or not. I'm actually trained in the history and philosophy of science. So philosophy of science as it interacts with the history of science. Um, which is just a just a long, long way away from <laughs> existentialism as a, as an intellectual tradition. I am interested, I guess, before we get going. Uh, so if you're not doing existential philosophy, if that is not uh, sort of your wheelhouse, what is it about these other kinds of philosophy that you practice that you see as really being relevant to helping people work through, uh, you know, the philosophical problems in their life? Yeah. So, yeah, thanks. That's a that's a good question. Uh, so the, sorry to clarify the question specifically is, um, what is my sort of like standard philosophy research? How does, how does that, it does that help at all? Uh, <laughs> um, do, I would is, say, okay. Was I, my dissertation a helpful thing to have done for humanity or, or <laughs> no, I'd rephrase it. Uh, I, of course I, uh, that's, 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 uh, a, a terrible question to, to ask people really. Um, I, I maybe know, I could know. rephrase it slightly as saying, you know, um, like what, what do you see perhaps in, in the tradition that you've studied in as opposed to maybe a, a more existential uh, continental tradition that you yeah. think, yeah, this has been really helpful for me, or I think this could be really helpful for other people in a more sort of applied practical sense, uh, right. sort of in the ways that you'd be working with them in a, in a counseling setting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I think that there's a, in some broad abstract sense, um, something helpful that comes out of my sort of my, the kind of research I did in my dissertation and my, and a couple of papers. Um, if I, if I could summarize it, it would be about uh, thinking hard about the relationship between parts and wholes uh, and what that looks like in a modern materialist worldview. So I take it that the scientific, I was raised in the kind of secular scientific worldview. And I take it that the, the received view of that is that we're basically just a bunch of atoms that are made up of quarks and whatever um so that when you ask about something like 
consciousness or meaning, these things are very hard to locate in that kind of like reductionistic worldview. So if you think that I, you and I are nothing but a whole bunch of quarks floating around in a quantum foam, it's hard to say where things like my sense of myself as an agent fits into that uh, or my sense that maybe some ways of living are more worthwhile than others or good or bad. Uh, if the universe is just a bunch of quarks floating around, where, whence goodness, whence badness? Like what, how do you fit that in? Um, so there's a philosopher called Wilfred Sellers who wrote this really good paper called uh, Science and the Manifest Image. Um, mm -hmm. Talking about these two different ways we have of seeing the world, one through the microscope and the telescope where all you see is a bunch of atoms banging around ultimately, and one from behind our own eyeballs where we see a world full of meaning and significance and choices and all that stuff. And how do you fit those two things together? Um, so, I mean, the ultimate purpose of the kind of research I was doing in my dissertation was to try to make some progress towards seeing how those two things might fit together. I'm not keen on abandoning either of them. I mean, I think science is the best thing we've done probably since agriculture. Like it's the best knowledge gathering system that I know. So I'm, I'm certainly not going to lightly throw it aside, but I'm also not willing to give up on the idea that I'm like, an agent in the world with purposes and goals and meaning and all that stuff. Um, I find that pure materialism to be quite a, quite a chillingly cold worldview. And I think a lot of people are feeling that, um, you know, what's the point, you know, what's, what's, why, why, if it's just a whole bunch of atoms crashing around, like who cares about life or whatever? Um, it, it feels like the more that we learn about the universe through science, the less, mystery and 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 magic there is in the world and i just i don't buy it that that's an inevitable clash mm. so what i was trying to do was think hard about how some i mean i think that there's a reasonable argument to me that some holes are more than the sum of their parts um, to use aristotle's phrase and my thesis advisor dennis walsh really worked that angle from the kind of evolutionary and biological sides now he doesn't I want to, I want to be clear that there's parts of this that I, he doesn't say, so I'm interested in the meaning of life. He talks about purposes in organisms. So he thinks that there, he, he makes this case that, you know, if you're trying to do biology, he was trained as a biologist, you've worked as a biologist for a few years. Uh, if you're trying to do biology and you don't talk ever about organisms, organized whole living things, then you're missing the subject of biology, right? So Evolutionary biology largely proceeds in terms of gene frequencies and populations that it never really mentions the, the kind of organized living whole being. And that seems, he seems to him to be really missing something crucial about how life evolves over time, which is life is a bunch of agents with goals and purposes, like living the mm -hmm. characteristic of a living thing is that it tries to do stuff. It's got goals and aims. Which is something it's uh, so philosophers call that teleological. So organisms are have have teleology, but that's something that we were supposed to have banned with the scientific revolution. So when uh, you know when the scientific revolution rolled around, it was supposed to you know Aristotle talked about goals and purposes. The purpose of fire is to go up, and you know the goal the fire is trying to get up to the heavenly sphere, and the rocks are trying to get back down to the center of things. That was his physics. The scientific revolution comes along and says. 
no, 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 no. We're not going to talk about goals or purposes anymore. We're just going to talk about mechanisms. We're just going to talk about the pushy pulley stuff that makes matter do what it does. And that was a good move at the time. That was a really good move at the time. I think we've, science made amazing pro when it started focusing on mechanisms, trying to reduce some complicated thing into a bunch of simple moving parts. That was a, that was a gangbuster strategy for centuries. Um, and we learned a ton about the, the natural world, but it's not clear to me that that string of success entails that there is nothing but mechanisms, just that focusing on mechanisms as a research strategy is very fruitful. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, that's great. I wanna uh, maybe use that as a jumping off point to dive into what we've decided is going to be our main topic today, which is uh, the meaning of life. And I think you've already included what would be maybe uh, my first question to you about uh, why that topic. Uh, so I think maybe uh, where we can start is, you mentioned that you're interested in the meaning of life, whereas uh, your supervisor, uh, Professor Walsh, was more interested in uh, something like the purpose of life. Is that right? Um, he, would, he would go even not quite that far. So mm -hmm. um, the purpose of life sounds like the purpose of the whole organism, whereas uh, Dennis was really focused on a, a fairly straightforward and commonsensical notion of purpose, where like the parts of organ organisms have purposes. So my heart is for pumping blood and you can judge whether it's doing a good job as a heart in terms of whether it's good at pumping blood. My lungs are for exchanging gases, that kind of thing. So biologists never stop talking about purposes of at least the parts of organisms. Um, and that's, that's all, I think that's, that's the main thing that Dennis is trying to get across. And he, he does want to see the organized overall organism as having goals, but not really a larger purpose to the organism. So you might, you might distinguish the organism as a whole, having a goal. I want to run away from predators and get toward food, that kind of thing. So he does think that you need that agency in our description of living things, but he doesn't go so far as to say that the organisms have purposes. And I always found that a little disappointing. Like all of my parts have purposes, but I don't have one. That's a little, it's just a little bit of a, a letdown in the, in the story. So I, I'm, and that's where, that's where he sort of declines to go to start talking about, well, do, do organisms have purposes? And, uh, I'm, I'm curious anyway. So this is something I've wrestled with for most, I think it's say most of my life. Okay. So it sounds like you are interested in the purpose of life. <laughs> something. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess I want to ask from there, uh, what, if any distinction do you see between uh, the purpose of life and the meaning of life? Uh, mm. Why ask about one question rather than the other, if it makes a difference to you? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good question. And I'm, I'm, I sometimes struggle to keep a clear distinction in mind. So if, if this seems muddled, it's because I'm muddled, but here, let me take a shot at it. So, um, you know, I can, I can have a purpose that's meaningless, right? I can decide that I'm going to, uh, you know, stack up 10 paper clips on a pile and it's not deeply, profoundly important to me, or I can, you know, I can be stuck in a job that I don't like. And I have lots of goals in that job. Like I have to meet my quotas. I have to do this. I have to do that, but it doesn't strike you as meaningful. So I don't know that there's, and, and maybe you can have meaning without purposes as well. So something can happen to you without your intending it to, that is nonetheless strikes you as profoundly meaningful. Um, 
but there's lots of overlap as well. So like you might, uh, lots, I mean, I'm jealous of the kind of religious worldviews in which humans have a purpose divinely ordained. So we are, God put us here for some specific reason. Um, and that fulfilling that purpose presumably is experienced as a deeply meaningful way to live, right? There's, there's, there's powerful significance and importance to fulfilling your purpose. So if, if I do have a purpose, then fulfilling that purpose seems like a good candidate for the meaning of my life, right? Like I take it that for my, for my, uh, kidneys, their purpose is to filter my blood and mm. that if they had any sense of things being meaningful, that they would find that to be a very satisfying, you know, like I'm you're, you're built. So when you think about what, what makes something ex experience, something as meaningful, it's, you know, like this is a task for which I'm suited. This is a task for which I am maybe even uniquely suited. Um, this is a task that has a higher purpose. Like it has some, has some higher function beyond my, individuality i'm i'm participating in something larger than me um yeah so uh, that didn't i don't think i cleanly sorted out the difference between the purpose and the meaning of life but i think that they're potentially interacting but also also potentially separate ideas anyway. sure that seems like a perfectly reasonable place to start i think the next question I want to ask is, you know, you mentioned that you can have some event, for example, that doesn't seem to clearly serve a purpose, but it is experienced by you as intensely meaningful. Yeah. Uh, so what does that mean in your own view and your own parlance? What does it mean for something to be meaningful? It's a bit of an odd question, but I'll let you take <laughs> it from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, so I'm, I'm not coming. I'm not coming with a lot of clear answers here, but I can I can give you my muddled best shot at it. Sure. Um. I. I'm so John John Verbicki talks quite a bit about the meaning of life. He's got this fascinating YouTube series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Um. So I'm and I I'm deeply influenced by his by his thinking. Um. But he says that meaning is a kind of metaphor in this context. The meaning of a sentence. Sentences have meanings. Uh. Whereas life. He thinks it sort of has a metaphorical meaning. In fact, a, a U of T philosopher told me that uh, she, when it, back when people got on airplanes, often get on an airplane and somebody said, what do you do for a living? She said, she's a philosopher. And they say, oh, well, what's the meaning of life? And she'd say, words and sentences have meaning. Life is not the sort of thing that has meaning. And found that was a very effective way of ending the conversation. She didn't want to talk to these people and that, that shot them up pretty quick. Um, so meaning in the sense of we can start from the way that a word or a sentence has meaning, but I think it actually, so to disagree with John with, with the most respect, I think meaning actually has a fairly literal um, uh, interpretation when we're thinking about lives as well. So if you think about the meaning of a word, um, the meaning of the word, of course, depends on its context. So when you're, you're interpreting the meaning of a word, you need to know a bit about how it's being used and by whom and all that stuff. When I use the word I, it has a different meaning than when you use the word I, of course. Um, and often the exact meaning of the word depends on the meaning of the sentence that it's embedded in, right? So the, the sentence itself helps determine what the meaning of each individual word is. And you can kind of do that with sentences as well, right? So the meaning of a sentence, what it means to us, what the significance or relevance for us is determined by the sentence that came before it and the sentence that came after so if I, you know, uh, if I'm 
having a serious conversation with my significant other and I say, I'm not sure this is going to work out. That means that means something profoundly different than if I'm trying to put together some Ikea furniture with her and I just don't think it's going to happen. Right. So the, the meaning of that, the meaning of that sentence is profoundly different in one of those contexts than the other. And it's the context that determines it. Right. So the, you know, sentences don't get their meanings kind of, you can't just look up each word in the dictionary and know the meaning of the sentence in some broad sense of meaning. It's its significance in a context. And context is one of those very slippery words that kind of means the whole rest of the universe. Um, and this is maybe what the, so I haven't, I haven't totally ignored continental philosophy. This is maybe what uh, Derrida means when he talks about difference, the, the meaning, the, the kind of like infinite play of meaning. You can make a work of fiction mean something new by writing another work of fiction. Right. You can, mm -hmm. you can, all, all meaning is constantly up for alteration as con as the context change, because meaning is a context dependent thing. Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking, so now we can, so that's words and sentences. Let's go to the meaning of life. So for words and sentences, this broad, I mean, there's the, there's the denotation sense of meaning. There's like the literal objects you're picking out in the world, but that's a pretty impoverished sense of meaning. I think there's a much broader, broader notion that we sort of know intuitively. And it's something like its significance or its relevance to us in its context, relative to a context. Mm -hmm. And um, when we think about the meaning of life, you might think about something Similar, the, the significance or relevance of the, your life as a whole in some context. Right. And when we talk about an event being particularly meaningful, um, I guess it means that that event has a particular significance within specifically the context of your life up to that yeah. point. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's, so this is, uh, I think it's, it's, maybe misleading to think about meaning and purpose of life as interchangeable because um, you're, it can have significance to you without having a, without having some specific goal in mind. And uh, uh, Viktor Frankl talks about this. So he's Viktor Frankl is one of those existential psychotherapists. And the way he talks about meaning is I think very interesting. He, he talks about it in a kind of bottom up way where you don't start with the goal, like the ultimate goal of your life and then work backwards to what should I do? You have things in your life that are meaningful to you. And then the meaning of your life. So, the, you know, this say you do something that's meaningful to you, you, you help somebody or you create something or whatever, whatever it is that gets that felt sense of meaning going for you. And then the meaning of your life. So that, so that event is integrated. It's, it's relevant relative to the context of the rest of your life. A meaningful life is one where all of those meaningful events gain relevance relative to each other and relative to the larger world that you're in, something like that. So meaning, meaning starts from moments, experiences, actions, and you build up a meaningful life from the as it were from the bottom up rather than you know there's this one purpose hung over you so god god had a mission for you he wrote it down somewhere and your job is to do that mission mm. uh frankel i think thinks very much in terms of uh not an end goal but 
a series of hopefully meaningful activities that meaningfully cohere together in a meaningful way. That was a lot of interesting. Yeah. So it seems like at least following Frankel here, we're almost finding a bit of tension perhaps between the purpose of life and the, the meaning or meaningfulness of life that uh, to some extent having this overarching purpose can interfere with the ability to string together these meaningful uh, events into a life that we perceive as being meaningful overall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly interferes if you, if you straightforwardly confuse the two mm-hmm. and think that you can't have any meaning before you have a purpose, um, then you're not going to build up those you're going to sort of block the process of indul- like indulging in the moments of your life as feeling significant to you. And you're not going to have the raw materials out of which to build some larger thing. And Frank, I mean, Frankl's ex- uh, examples of meaningful actions are, are particularly telling in this, in this context. He, he cites things like one starving person giving their last morsel of food to another starving person. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no purpose there. That's, I mean, other, other than, you know, there, like there's no, you're both you're both gonna die right like you're, and pretty pretty soon both of these people are gonna be gone uh it doesn't go anywhere it doesn't sort of um it doesn't change this overall state of the world but it's nonetheless meaningful it's nonetheless a meaningful human action a meaningful human connection um and that's you know so that's a, it's a stark difference between trying to get somewhere and do something versus having a moment that is significant in its context Mm. That's great. I think we have a a lot on the table here that I want to return to at some point. Uh, I definitely like to talk more about, uh, I mean, you mentioned, for example, uh, Derrida and his uh, view of of language and how it might be relevant to to this question. I'd love to talk more about sort of the relevance of post-structuralism to to some of these issues, because I know it often gets dismissed, I think, in terms of not being able to answer these sorts of philosophical questions, existential questions that we have. Uh, and I also, uh, you mentioned, for example, John Verveke and this idea of a meaning crisis. Uh, yeah. What is a meaning crisis? I'd love to talk more about that as well. But even before we get to that, uh, with if you'll have a bit of patience with me, um, I'd like to add uh, another thing to the table, which is that, uh, so I know, uh, about you from your your own uh, personal history that you uh, were encountering uh, Carl Jung yourself a little bit during your uh, undergraduate studies, I think. Um, It seems like around the time that you were maybe also orienting yourself toward these sorts of questions of, um, you know, dealing with uh, purpose in in organisms and and, um, the issues of the particular version of uh, scientific materialism that we've ended up with. So the question that I'm leading into is I'm wondering um, if and how uh, Jung appeared useful to you at that point uh, Mm. with regard to, you know, potentially addressing any of these questions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you're, you're quite right. In my, in my undergrad, I encountered uh, Jung through the uh, new college paradigms and archetypes minor uh, uh, major program um uh yeah uh, under i took a ton of classes with uh professor ann yeoman who was just fantastic she was she was i'm sorry that she's not teaching at uft anymore but 
she it was a it was a profound learning experience for me. So I got a I got a, a decent taste of of Jung's work through her through her classes. And I think the thing that jumped out at me immediately was this notion of integration that Jung uh, focuses so much on. That he he talks about the the development of the personality in terms of integrating opposites, integrating quite separate and seemingly contradictory parts of you, and kind of moving moving forward through those through that integration. Like that integration, you don't just become this undifferentiated mass of like blandness. You become a, a more whole and, in some sense, differentiated person. It's like you, you, you both become more whole, more unified with yourself, but also more articulate, in the sense that you can do you you gain in sort of like freedom and agency or something like that. So I was at the time I was wrestling really hard to integrate some parts of my personality. Um, uh, the usual, I mean, my my personal lifestyle is probably not super interesting to to listeners but uh maybe there's a more general thing that i was struggling to integrate which was this i mean this very serious love of science with this sense that there's that there's the raw like straight on un, unreconstructed mechanism and materialism don't leave any space for humans qua humans like as mm. as as people and what do you, that was, that was my, that was my contradiction. Like that was my, um, the 10, one of, oh, sorry, not, not the whole one, but one of the tensions that I was trying to struggle through was like, how do I, how do I be like, I, I wasn't willing to, uh, just give up on rationality and reason and, uh, you know, caring about evidence and arguments and stuff like that. But I also wasn't willing to say, okay, well, therefore we're just a bunch of quarks on quantum foam and that's, that's it. There's just, there's nothing, there's nothing more to be said about the human condition than that. You're just, you're just a bunch of atoms. So um, that was, you know, those are, those are quite, I have a, so the, the one, the one qualification we didn't, we didn't sort of talk explicitly about is that I'm a, a reverend in the universal life church. Uh, <laughs> we didn't talk about, we didn't talk very much about that, but I think, I, I think I've got that um sense of um you know i i had a i had a uh, some early childhood experiences that you might call jung might call numinous mm -hmm. um where you know there's this you can say all is one to a person and it just falls utterly utterly flat when i hear that sentence now i'm like yep so what but uh there are some moments in some people's lives where that sentence just glows and rings through your whole being and changes what how everything seems to matter in this really really uplifting way mm -hmm. um and so i've I'd had a couple experiences of the numinous uh uh throughout my throughout my childhood and adolescence and i needed something to do with that i, I know i had no in my scientific materialist worldview i had just nowhere to put those experiences no way to uh, you know, you can rationalize them away and say, well, it's my brain chemistry did something odd, but that doesn't help you understand what it did to what those experiences do to your like worldview and like the, the way the things seem to matter or not matter. Uh, yeah. So Jung offered me a way to not just frame that struggle as a struggle. So the, they're trying to unify the opposites, but also, um, uh, Jung provides a, a way of 
thinking about religious questions in a relatively secular way. Mm-hmm. I want to say this is a this is a tricky one because Jung is not a I wouldn't qualify I wouldn't say he's a secular guy and he's certainly not a materialist. Um but it gave me a way of working with mythological themes or religious ideas in a way that wasn't simply evaluating them for truth mm-hmm. and had more to do with trying to understand what kind of world they are suggesting to you what kind of way of being in the world is being is being offered up here um, right um one of the things that you mentioned uh, was that you felt that Jung was helping you to integrate uh, certain parts of yourself um perhaps integrate certain experiences that you'd had into your uh, conception of the world. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it strikes me as, I mean, that is particularly interesting, I, I guess, because we could say in some sense that integration and uh, moreover individuation are for Jung, I guess, uh, the purpose of life in some way and what makes life meaningful. Uh, like I think that Jung would probably say that the experiences that we have that are the most meaningful to us are ones in which we are actively integrating uh, other parts of our psyche. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'm very interested in, in that question. And if you see any link there, maybe to, uh, you know, between this idea of integration and uh, maybe your feelings about uh, what brings us meaning in our life let's say yeah yeah um yeah so Jung I think you're exactly right that Jung Jung thinks about integration as the kind of telos of the personality or the 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 kind of goal of the the implicit goal of the unconscious is integration I think that's Mm -hmm. I think that's his view um it's a it's a kind of innate human tendency to Mm -hmm. want to integrate um that is you know you got you got your conscious values and you've got some opposite set of shadow values you got some you know when if you if you think uh this was this was my one if you if you think that materialism is stupid and everybody should just stop being trying to show off to each other there's some there's some deep dark part of you that really wants a fancy clothes and a Lamborghini and a, and a nice house and all that stuff so um uh being able to what Jung's I take it Jung's proposal is something like what the personality wants to do is to have those shadow values brought up into consciousness or, or brought into, into conversation with consciousness. And you find some, you don't just give up one or the other, you find some way of integrating them. So, you know, you might, maybe you do care about the material world, certain aspects of the material world. So you start going to thrift stores to get clothes that you actually think speak about you rather than just sort of disdainfully wearing whatever rags you happen to have. You start like, caring about uh your appearance uh maybe mm-hmm. that's maybe that's one way of integrating those values and like uh i do i do think that um that seems to be a tendency people have um we seem to want to address those deep parts of ourselves and find some kind of relationship with them um yeah so but that's I don't, I don't know how much that lines up with. So he's, he says some really interesting stuff about the meaning of life in memories, dreams, and reflections. Mm-hmm. 
and it it seems to be um related but not the same as integration uh so in memories dreams and reflections he says some stuff about he had he describes this sort of this experience that he has um uh sort of looking out over i think the african savannah if i'm not if i'm not mistaken and uh, he he describes having this overwhelming sense of the cl clarity about the meaning of life, and it's something like to raise up the light of consciousness for there to be a further you know that consciousness in some sense remakes the world. It, it's a it's a second creation where uh, you know somebody's got to be awake and aware of it for it to really be in some way, whereas before there was no witnesses to to existence. That might be one of those sentences like every all is one, which. You got to be in just the right frame of mind for it to hit you as mm -hmm. i mean i i think if you tried that out on 10 people in the street you wouldn't you wouldn't get universal uptake with people going ah yes obviously that's the meaning of life and now i know what to do with my existence because just i mean just being conscious is great um i i enjoy it and i recommend it to all my friends but it's it doesn't seem to it doesn't tell you much about what to do with that consciousness or where to go with it sure um Okay, so just to try and summarize a bit here, it, it, my understanding is you're saying that uh, for Jung in your reading of him, integration is sort of oriented toward this attainment of greater consciousness. Right. Um, and you're maybe a little bit skeptical about, uh, I guess, how valuable that consciousness is universally um, or, or whether that is a sufficient end point uh, mm. if we're talking about uh, you know these ideas of purpose and, and meaning or if we need mm. to have something that is telling us more about what to do with that greater consciousness yeah yeah that's that's I think that's essentially it and it's it, I have a similar worry about and uh, again so I should say this isn't like an objection to what Jung's saying it's just a, it's just a word it's a non-rhetorical worry it's just mm -hmm. a thing that I'm not certain about and I have a similar worry about uh, the existentialists so uh, the existentialists, I thought, I think it's a, it's, it's good intellectual progress to say, okay, we were mistaken to think that the universe had a pre-programmed meaning or purpose for us. It was, you know, um, we used to think that God had given us a job on earth and our job was just to like follow God's laws. And that's, that's what we're here for. The existentialists say, no, turns out the universe doesn't have something pre-arranged for you in terms of meaning. You got to come up with it yourself. And so cool. That's, that's good. I mean, it's, it's, if, if that's right, then we've gotten beneath uh, one of the layers of illusion that might keep us from having living meaningful lives, but then they give us practically no information about how to, what kind of meaning to create. Um, Sartre almost on principle refuses to say mm -hmm. what kind of, what we should do to create our own meaning. He's like, no, that's entirely up to you. You, you are condemned to be utterly free. I cannot, if I'm giving it to you, then then it's not you creating the meaning. Like well, thanks a lot, guys. That's a that's that's great. That's just great. Right. Right. I'm in yeah. high school trying to decide where to go for university or like what kind of job to try to get. You're like, you got to figure it out. It's like, yeah, I know, I know, I have to figure. That's what I was trying to do before I read your book. Um, so <laughs> it's unclear. It's unclear how much practically that moves us forward in terms of literally trying to figure out what to do with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I. I definitely i'm in agreement with you there i have i guess some of some similar feelings about um the existential movement and particularly about uh, i think sartre's uh, version of um that movement and and that imperative uh and 
you know, I think that certainly extends to certain aspects of Jungian thought as well. Mm. I, I'm very critical personally, I think as well of, of these moments in Jung where it seems like uh, he's advocating that, uh, you know, the goal of, of all life is the increase of consciousness. I think it almost in some points seems like this sort of uh, um, imperialistic model, like mm. consciousness is just marching forward and, and, yes you know, encountering more and more territory, which right. I, I do think that he sort of tempers that um, in certain places as well. I think perhaps what is more interesting uh, for me about Jung is, for example, his idea that uh, health, what we are intrinsically motivated to move toward is wholeness, uh, and that integration is perhaps uh, not so much directly in the service of greater consciousness, although that might be uh, a sort of symptom uh, of integration, but rather that uh, it's moving toward, uh, yeah, this, this attainment of wholeness. I wonder if that has more resonance with you. And also, I wonder what the connection is between this idea of wholeness and this idea of, I guess, having experiences and a life that are really connected to one's context, which is something that seems to be important to you. Yeah. Yeah. So certainly I think that there's uh, a strong, strong reason to think that wholeness is uh, one of the, one of the things you need in order to have the feeling that your life is meaningful. So things, things fitting together seems to be as a matter of psychology, one of the things that cor correlates with an experience of meaningfulness. Um, I, th I think there's a there's interesting work being done right now on what, as a matter of fact, gives people this sort of like meaning juice. Uh, this you know what mm. what gives you the feeling of this you know some some days you're like well that was I just totally wasted that day and some days you're like yeah that was a good day I did I did important and interesting things mm -hmm. and so I think I think that there's uh, interesting empirical questions about that and wholeness as far as I can tell seems to be one of those things like. Uh, being in a position where you feel like you're using all of the tools that you have seems to be profoundly satisfying to people, right? So you, you know, if you're if you're if you're doing work that uses every resource that you have in the sense of like you're all of all of your latent all of your latent talents are called up and brought into this into the, some kind of integrated project. Oh, we love that. We just love that. Um, and being connected to other people, of course. So being being connected to a community is another thing. It seems to be, uh, in my cursory, cursory reading of this kind of fairly tentative psych, the psychology of wisdom, those seem to be highly correlated with this feeling of meaning. Whole, so whole, wholeness is great uh, to, 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 to uh, say that, but I, I, wonder if it's, I wonder if it's enough. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking of like, you know, an, an amoeba is very whole. They're very integrated with themselves. They don't have any, I don't think, I don't think amoebas have neurosis. They don't have like inner parts of themselves that are struggling against other inner parts. They're extremely whole. Uh, well, that means that we love, we, we dropped the ball millions of years ago. Uh, we should never have become, if wholeness is the point, we should never have become multicellular. That's the first mistake we made. Multicellularity uh, implies the potential for, conflicting interests within the organism sure um yeah i think freud would maybe agree with you on this point uh right right I, <laughs> having a big having a big complex nervous system is another big big blunder if wholeness is what we're after 
having a big complex nervous system is a terrible mistake. You should have, like, you should be like a, like a flatworm, 100, 150 neurons max. That's a nice way to get really good integration. Um, yeah. So wholeness is great. Wholeness is awesome, but it doesn't seem to be the only thing that we find meaningful. And I think that there's something very peculiar about human beings and a few other pretty complex organisms on this planet where you can be in a world where you feel utterly, utterly at home. You know, you've got people, you've got comfort, you've got safety and all that stuff. And we will mess that up. We will, we will just, just to see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we're, we're the animal that, uh, it, you know, the, the horizons of experience call to us, I think, constantly. Once you, once you have your basic needs met, people seem to have this really strong tendency to be like, okay, so what's next? What's over the hill? Where else can I go? What else can I do? We seem to feel like everything being predictable is in some sense what our nervous systems want, right? You want to be able to anticipate what's going to happen. That's what makes us feel safe and comfortable. But we also find a perfectly predictable environment to be hell, right? You, uh, if everything's the same every day, we're, we become very upset. Like, okay, I need, some, I need some new stuff coming in. I need some novelty. I need some on the challenges and, and all that kind of stuff. So we'll, we'll intentionally make problems. I think the hobby is a problem that you made for yourself. You intentionally give yourself some complex problem to solve just for the fun of it. Uh, Cause we just, we just find it in, intrinsically satisfying to mess things up every once in a while. And in that sense, create a feeling of incompleteness. Like, Oh, well, you know, I just, I just, I'm brewing beer and I, and until I get this certain type of hops, I just don't feel like a whole person. You did that to yourself because you think it's fun to feel incomplete and always on a quest and all that stuff. Sure. Um, that it's not, that's not at all to discount the importance of wholeness and uh, especially as it relates to health, right? So like having, having your parts coordinated definitely seems like a precondition for the possibility of health and therefore the possibility of a meaningful life to some extent to be integrated. Hmm. Um, but we also seem to have a almost... A, a drive that will push us out of that and I, I, it's probably not true of all animals right? i think i think amoebas are are perfectly happy on a on a um petri dish you give them food and you keep them safe i think i don't think that they suffer any kind of existential despair but people we do seem to sure yeah i'll say i mean we don't have to spend all our time talking about wholeness but uh one clarification that I think I'd like to make in this area is that uh, when Jung talks about wholeness, I think he would disagree, for example, with the idea that a life uh, like you're describing that's perfectly safe, perfectly comfortable, is a life that's whole. Uh, I mean, he's probably going to make the claim that, in fact, while you're leaving that life, there's a lot uh, in your uh, unconscious that's not being uh, given a place in this life. Mm -hmm. And that uh, Jung would, would say, I imagine, is why you feel the need to take up a new hobby, for example, and you have to ask the question of what is this hobby doing for me? Um, is it simply distracting me or is it giving me an opportunity to perhaps experiment with, express certain uh, tendencies, certain mm. interests and desires that 
um, are welling up within me that didn't previously have any outlet or recognition by me. And mm. so, um, that's, yeah, thank you. that's I, interesting. I think this is maybe one thing that distinguishes us from a, an amoeba um, is that amoebas don't have an unconscious. Right. Uh, right. I mean, it's arguable whether they have consciousness uh-huh. uh, of, of some sort, uh, but they certainly don't have an unconscious, at least not in the way that uh, is comprehensible to us at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's no need for an amoeba to undergo that kind of uh, integration. Yeah. yeah. That sounds I, that sounds right to me. Yeah. That's that does sound right to me. So what it what makes a perfectly predictable environment hell is that you're not using many, many parts of yourself. So when I'm when I'm my job is when when my work is more typing than anything else, I find an intense need to do something practical with my hands to make something or fix something, something like that. Because I've I've got skills that are just laying dormant. Thank you for tuning in to the first half of our conversation with Professor Corey Lewis. The second part of our conversation will be released in a second episode coming soon. There, we'll continue to talk about aspects of Jungian thought and touch on elements of Buddhism and other facets of the meaning of life.